What's up, everyone, and welcome to Mike Check. I'm your host, Mike Velasquez, and this is the podcast where we'll talk about all things fitness, wellness, rehab, and more importantly, the constant pursuit of knowing better in order to do better for the people that we serve. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mike Check. I'm your host, Mike Velasquez, and today I'm excited to be joined by Eric Sokolowski. Um, Eric, thanks for for coming on the show today, and and I'm really happy and excited to get this episode rolling with you. Yeah, no problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. So uh, thankfully, I have the privilege of working with you, so that's how I've um, gotten to know you a little bit. But if you don't mind just giving maybe the listeners a little bit of a background on you know where you went to school, uh, how long you've been practicing for, what you do, um, just, just so that they can get a, a little background information. Yeah. Um, so I did my undergrad at Central Connecticut State, and I graduated in 2010, um, almost 2011, kind of winter, winter graduator, uh, with a bachelor's in exercise science. And it was my advisor there that ended up pushing me towards physical therapy as a grad school option. I was contemplating between, you know, doing that, um, you know, following in my dad's footsteps and being like a contractor for like roofing and siding and that type of thing. So way, way off base. Um, and then, uh, potentially a strength coach. Um, so I shadowed a little bit there and I realized it probably wasn't for me. So, um, yeah, he pushed me towards physical therapy and then I, um, not very intelligently applied to one school and got in. <laughs> uh, so I went to university of Hartford, uh, starting in 2012. And that's where I, you know, got my uh, doctorate in physical therapy and graduated in 2015. Um, so yeah, haven't looked back since. Um, let's see. So I started out working in an outpatient uh, private practice clinic and I hated it. It was, you know, definitely, I call it kind of like a factory, you know, I would be I would see, you know, 15 patients in the morning and maybe 20 in the afternoon, all crammed in a short period of time. You get five minutes with the patient and, you know, you don't follow up with the same people uh, day to day and week to week. So it was really a pretty frustrating thing for me. And luckily I did one of my clinicals, my last clinical at Gaylord in the outpatient neuro department. And I really did enjoy it. So... I learned from my old CI that there was an opening uh, for a split position between outpatient neuro and outpatient ortho. And I thought that that could be a good opportunity to try to, you know, maybe see if I did want to go in that direction and, you know, just, just be more well-rounded and gain some experience. So I did that for close to a year and then I ended up uh, gravitating towards ortho and, you know, I've been at Gaylord since. Awesome. Um, I actually uh, also kind of maybe not so smartly, you know, just uh, applied to one physical therapy school, but uh, <laughs> I was lucky enough to get into to UConn as well. Um, so I, I can, I, yeah, <laughs> we barely. Uh, yep. Thankfully that uh, that worked out for us both. Um, now, and I'm not sure if you kind of, you know, what kind of athletic background you had maybe in high school or college, but it doesn't sound like you had maybe what I would consider the you know, typical, you know, I got hurt and went to physical therapy. So I decided I went, wanted to go to physical therapy school kind of story that a lot of people, at least that I went to school with, um, seem to have. 
Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really common one. And, you know, I hear that from a lot of students, but I was not very athletic, you know, growing up. Um, and, you know, I played music, I did art and, you know, it just never, never was my thing. I was scrawny and weak, <laughs> you know, and I just, I just didn't make a good athlete. But when I, um, got, out of high school, you know, I started going to the gym and I don't remember exactly why I went. I think my family was kind of berating me to do something. And, you know, I thought it was kind of a good idea. So I started messing around with weights and, you know, I realized that I, I got pretty strong and I saw some results and it just kind of snowballed from there. But I've been through just about every mistake in the strength and conditioning realm that you can possibly go through in addition to the physical therapy one. So I've been on, on both sides of, of that. Um, and yeah, so, so that's kind of how I, how I ended up in the exercise science field. And from there, you know, I shadowed a couple PT clinics cause you needed hours. And I thought, you know, this could be something that I, I would want to do. And, you know, um, so that's kind of how I got into PT, you know, versus, um, you know, that traditional path that you talked about, uh, at the time, you know, I was also doing some personal training on the side as I went through school. Um, I still do a little bit now. I actually really enjoy it. Um, and then I discovered Kelly Starrett and I think we had talked about that, um, in the past. And at the time I thought it was like the coolest thing, you know, like it's a, a system for improving someone's performance outside of, you know, the weight room. So the, the extra stuff and, you know, it, it definitely spoke to me and, and I looked up to him. Um, so I definitely am thankful for discovering that, um, because, you know, that actually pushed me to pursue it a little bit more, um, than probably I otherwise would have. Yeah, it was definitely a huge mobility wad junkie. And I know that we've, we've talked about that in, in the past, becoming a supple leopard was like my Bible at the time oh, when, yeah. when it came out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I know, you know, growing up, you said, you know, not maybe, you know, athletics wasn't really a big calling for you, but you know, now, um, I know that you, you train kind of as a, as a power lifter. So, um, you know, can you go into a little bit of a background and, you know, how long maybe you've been training doing that for and, and maybe how that's, you know, led into a little bit of, of your practice and kind of what you do now. Yeah, totally. It, I think my, my powerlifting background had a pretty big influence on the way that I treated, Um, at times, um, obviously it probably played more of an influence, but, um, you know, as I started to mess around with weights and I started to get a little bit better, um, I discovered that powerlifting was a thing. And so I started training the barbell lifts a little bit more, um, uh, intently. So, you know, I did every single program you could think of, you know, um, starting strength and then, you know, mad cow five by five (laughs) and some West side stuff, all that. And, you know, I did a couple meets and I did pretty good. Um, so it's just something that I ended up continuing, you know, since then. And when I started to practice, you know, I realized that no one was really incorporating any of this type of exercise, um, into people's, uh, physical therapy. And I thought that they would be able to benefit from it. Although I wasn't exactly sure, you know, how I should be doing it, you know, when people are in pain and, and looking back, it's not something that 
I probably did very well, but I, th I think I, I probably did well enough, you know, um, to get people feeling better. Um, at least from the exercise standpoint, obviously there's so much more to it than that, but I tried to get most people doing some type of a squat movement. Most, most, uh, people to get some type of a hinge movement. And then, you know, I think from there I empowered people to try to build a little bit of strength and, you know, that was kind of irrespective of their goals. So looking back, it wasn't probably the smartest thing, but it was better than nothing. It was better than keeping people on the table. So I think that, that part of, of my training history spilled over into my practice and it definitely influenced me quite a bit. Well, yeah, I think I sometimes, you know, in, in the last year, kind of reflecting on that a little bit recently, sometimes I've, you know, I have my own biases, you know, towards, you know, maybe weight training and, um, you know, some of those more, you know, quote unquote, functional movements, if you will. But um, I, I definitely catch myself sometimes maybe, you know, getting so excited and what I want my patients to do that I have to remind myself of, okay, I, you know, kind of focus on, you know, maybe what they want to get back to. And then if I do think that it's important for them to, to incorporate these movements into kind of our treatment plan, then at least explaining to them how I think incorporating X movement will transfer into, into their goal, desired goal. Sure. No, I think, um, if you can get people doing this type of stuff and they buy into it, then why not? Yeah. So, um, but when you, uh, first graduated, would you say that, you know, I you know you sounded, you know, when you were first starting off, you, you did kind of well enough. Did you felt like compared to your, your classmates upon graduating that you had maybe more of a, a grasp on some of the strength and conditioning principles than maybe a general PT student does coming out of the gate? Yeah, I think I did. You know, I remember working, you know, even in my first clinical, my first ortho clinical, since I did have a background in training people, I was relatively good at communicating with people one-on-one. -on -one. And, you know, my CI picked up on that. And, you know, looking back, it, it definitely was a very helpful thing. Um, and then as far as the exercise prescription, I remember asking my CI, you know, you know, why are we doing 18 different versions of an external rotation, but only one set of 20, not thinking about, you know, are they working hard enough? You know, should they just do one of those versions so that we can do some other stuff? So, you know, I think even, even just being able to go beyond that was enough to kind of set me apart just a little bit. Um, as far as understanding a little bit of strength and conditioning, um, not to mention, you know, being able to even do something as simple as creating the right order of exercises, like starting out with maybe a multi-joint, uh, compound movement and then doing the isolation work afterwards, um, you know, starting with a warm-up. um, so, so even something as basic as that is not something that's commonly found, um, in a new grad's exercise prescription. So yeah, I, I think that I did have a little bit of a leg up, although applying that stuff to someone rehabbing, I still didn't have the best grasp on. So there were parts that it did help me and other parts where I still felt pretty lost. Yeah. I think, you know, especially as a, as a new grad and like we've talked about before, I still consider myself a new grad, even though I'm coming up on a year of, of practice. Mm -hmm. But for you, 
you know, coming out of out of school, you know, maybe having a little bit of a leg up on on others as far as you know some of the principles, maybe not necessarily how they tie in um, to someone dealing with with pain, but um, you know, were there any other things? You know, what were kind of some of the things coming out of school that you know maybe it led into some of the certifications that you got that you felt like you needed to have to maybe increase your confidence in working with people that were dealing with pain? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I got out, you know, as a new grad, I think I was pretty heavily influenced by the clinicians surrounding me. Um, as are most people, you know, they tend to be influenced by their CI and by their coworkers. And at the time, you know, I was working in a clinic that manual therapy was very heavily, um, you know, emphasized. So, you know, my first kind of certification, all my courses were geared towards, towards that, towards getting my CMPT. So, you know, that's kind of the, the direction I went because I figured, oh, well, the exercise part of it will help get people stronger, you know, and the manual therapy will help reduce people's pain. So, you know, you put those two together and bam, you know, you fix people. So, you know, obviously, you know, we know it's, it's not that simple. Um, and you know, I thought that that's what I needed to be able to get better at, to help people who were, who were in pain, because I already kind of knew how to exercise people when in reality, you know, I really wasn't probably doing a great job at either. Um, but it was good enough, you know, to at least, you know, you know, get by, not hurt anyone. And, you know, I think what probably helped me, you know, maybe stand apart a little bit is that I was a a decent communicator and, you know, I did listen to people and showed empathy and that type of thing. Um, so I think what I was doing from the manual and the exercise side of things probably didn't end up, you know, mattering all that much. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think I've definitely seen a difference and not that, you know, it has to get into the, you know, manual, you know, discussion at all during, you know, this topic, but, you know, I definitely see, you know, when I was going through physical therapy school, I thought, you know, I was going to find all these techniques that would help me, you know, quote unquote, fix people. And, you know, I see some of, you know, whether it's just other new grads in general that look to some of these courses that, you know, they're looking for the, you know, tools for their toolbox sort of thing versus where I kind of view myself as kind of standing out as far as the continuing education courses that I've gone to, um, kind of, you know, and again, it's not a, this is better versus that's, you know, not as good, but I go to courses that maybe make me force me to think a little bit more on maybe my own biases, um, versus kind of coming away with a new technique that I can immediately start practicing on, you know, my new patients, you know, come that next Monday, um, you know, have you had that experience yourself kind of going through maybe, you know, the initial continuing education that you, you went to coming out of school versus kind of where you are now and what 100%. you look for? Yeah, it's, it's a very tempting and almost intuitive kind of way of thinking, right? You know, if you find the next best technique to help someone who's dealing with pain, then, you know, you can apply those techniques to the right person at the right time and just get better results and just keep getting better and better as your toolbox grows. So, you know, I would go to these manual therapy courses. I went to the dry needling course and, you know, certainly after that, you know, 
<laughs> um, you know, everyone got needled, you know, and I would, I would try it out and, and it kind of like experiment. And I thought that this was like the key, you know, and after each one of those courses, I would kind of continually think that. And it's, it is kind of a dangerous way of thinking. Um, and I say that because, you know, we know from research that, you know, I, I know you kind of said that, you know, one thing isn't better than the other necessarily, but, you know, we can kind of lump all that stuff in together. And when we do look at the research, I, I would confidently say that it is not better than, you know, other interventions like exercising and, um, you know, educating well and giving activity modification advice. So, you know, we're, we're majoring in the minors was, is a, is a good way to put it. Um, so the things that really do help get people better is not what I thought it was. And it's not what I was focusing on. So, so that's why it kind of wasn't the best way to go about things, but it is a very tempting way of practicing, especially as a new grad. So, you know, I've, I've been through it and each time, you know, I kind of got into a groove. I, I felt like I, I knew what I was doing at that point and definitely some Dunning-Kruger going on because, you know, that continues to, to happen and continues to get busted down. And, you know, I'm, I'm still learning. So. Cool. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, super important. And, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, you're someone that I look up to, you know, in the field is that you continue to kind of reflect back on, on your practice and, and evolve with the, the new research that continues to come out, especially in, in a field like we're in. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, you do and, you know, Eric Lagoy also does is that you guys have started to implement, you know, these uh, elective courses in physical therapy curriculum. And, I, and I'm so happy to, to see that. And I really wish that I had had something, um, you know, in my curriculum back in physical therapy school addressing this, but, you know, your class that you have at the University of Hartford um, is the advanced exercise prescription for the physical therapist. So, you know, what kind of was your motivation to, to start that course? And, you know, why did you think it was important to implement, you know, into, into the curriculum there at the University of Hartford? Sure. So, you know, I thought going, going through the curriculum myself, um, you know, from 2012 to 2015, I remember, you know, having one lecture, you know, one guest lecture on strength and conditioning. And since that was like the one thing that I kind of knew what I was doing in that realm, I remember after the lecture, I was like, oh my God, that was terrible, you know? And then in musculoskeletal, I remember, um, talking about exercise and it basically came down to you pick the exercise based on the person's MMT grade, you know? So between that, uh, strength and conditioning lecture and that MMT thing, I was like, Oh my God, like no one knows what they're doing. So I always knew I did want to teach and I like helping people, you know, whether that be, you know, the patients themselves or, um, you know, other clinicians. Like I remember I would like learn like some new manual thing, uh, going back to that. And like, I couldn't wait to like practice it with my coworkers and like try to get better with each other. So, you know, I, I think that part of that like teaching drive has always been there. And when I saw Eric Wigoy, um, you know, start teaching, I was like, you know, well, I guess, 
now's as good as time as any. I'm going to try to see if I can finally do this. So, you know, I, I emailed back and forth with my, uh, one of my old professors and I pitched the idea and he came back and said, why don't you make a syllabus? So I made a syllabus. Obviously I had the help of some people and, you know, they, they approved it. So, you know, I felt that there was a, a giant hole in our curriculum for exercise prescription and, you know, learning a little bit about pain. Um, so I felt like I could kind of combine all those things. It's a little bit of a Trojan horse, you know, because it's not just about exercise. I put in quite a bit more in there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been one of the most rewarding things of my career so far. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and definitely, you know, something that, you know, I've kind of always had that desire to, to want to teach as well. So, you know, thankfully, I had kind of reached out to you for an opportunity to try and help you a little bit um, with that class. And we got to film um, some videos for the for the upcoming summer. Um, and it was great just hearing you kind of doing one of the lectures that you were recording. You know, I was kind of like, i a student right in that moment. And I was kind of yeah. listening and hanging on your, on your words. And I was like, you know, I just really wish that that was something that i had had, um, and in, in, in my experience going through physical therapy school. But again, I'm glad that that's kind of becoming, um, slow and slow, you know, slow and slowly more incorporated into other curriculum, you know, around, around the United States, at least, um, but, you know, dealing with, you know, students and things like that. Do you, and even as a clinical instructor, um, because I know you've had, you know, a few students, you know, have you, have you seen their area uh, in this, you know, their or knowledge in this area, I should say, kind of improve over the last couple of years, or maybe it depends on the student that you have, or, you know, in more in general, you know, what do you think, you know, students that you see on these rotations kind of struggle with in general, just kind of being in the clinic for the first time or? Yeah. So I'll start with the kind of the first point there. And I don't think I've been doing this quite long enough, you know, to really uh, tell a difference, you know, in, you know, past uh, graduating classes and Mm -hmm. their kind of knowledge on this stuff versus now. So, you know, we kind of live in a little bit of a bubble where we follow the same people on social media and we all kind of practice this in the same location, the same way. So I don't think that, there's been quite big enough of, you know, a shift for, for me to tell, you know, like if I, I got a student from Sacred Heart and I had a student from UConn and then finally from UHeart and, you know, from that three-year period, I, I really didn't see much of a difference, but I think as a whole, it probably is getting there, but it's not enough to spill over that I'm actually seeing it quite yet in my classes. So I do think we are working towards the right direction, especially with something like level up initiative. I think they're probably leading the charge there, but, um, it's getting better, but it's not quite there yet where we're seeing it, um, you know, pop up. Maybe, maybe Eric Lagoy could speak a little bit differently. He's been doing a little bit longer and he has bigger classes. So I, I think he probably would have a slightly different opinion where he, he might be seeing it a little bit more, but it all, it could also be a Quinnipiac thing, you know, maybe a little bit, um, um, special to that location. So what was the second question? Um, I guess even just having, you know, seen students, you know, that you've had, um, 
you know, what are maybe some common things that you see oh, yeah. uh, students struggle with, you know, when you get them, you know, in the clinic, if sure. there's maybe a general kind of things that they struggle with. Yep. Um, it's, it's usually the same things. It's the same things that I struggle with too. And it would be communicating with patients, um, you know, trying to find that common ground, trying to find, uh, you know, a, a common connection and, and that therapeutic alliance, um, especially educating people, you know, in regards to why they might have pain or, you know, what the diagnosis means, um, what it doesn't mean, you know, why it might not be, you know, great to have a label. So that, that piece of it is probably the number one thing. And then secondly would be creating an exercise plan based on, you know, your objective exam, because people go crazy with that objective exam and, you know, they're trying to find, uh, the impairments and by finding the impairments, you think you could then select the correct, you know, exercises. And then by, you know, working on the impairments with the right exercise, you fix the person. So that, that kind of whole mindset as that being the number one thing, you know, is kind of flipped on its head you know, when you start looking at the research and what gets people better. So when students come in with that being the prime, their primary goal, um, you know, they're, they're not really focusing on the communication piece quite as much. They're not focusing on, you know, um, picking exercise prescriptions based on their goals and their preferences. You know, they're thinking more, what are the impairments? And then this is how I'm going to prescribe exercises. So, so th- those are two of the biggest things by far that I see. Yeah. And maybe I'm not sure if, if you kind of seen this or, or anything, but, you know, I know for me, especially again, um, just being out of school for about a year, you know, I always considered myself a good listener, but I know that coming out of school, I definitely had that, you know, checklist on kind of my subjective exam of like, okay, I had to ask these questions, make sure I was ruling this out. So even though I thought I was really doing a good job listening, I was still kind of working through that flow and not really, you know, asking more open-ended questions and, and letting them kind of tell me a little bit more about their story, maybe even unrelated to, you know, kind of the, you know, painful body part that they were dealing with. Um, do you kind of notice that as well, where we kind of just kind of are looking to check the boxes coming immediately out of school or did you do that yourself? Definitely did that myself. Um, and I think I still find myself sometimes doing that. Um, so the, the subjective part of the exam, that first meeting is I think so critical and so tough, uh, especially because, you know, that, that first encounter, you know, you have no idea what to expect. You, you don't know what kind of person that is. You, you don't really know their beliefs. You don't know which beliefs might be worth changing. Um, and you don't know if, you know, you're really getting the full picture because they could be hiding things from you or they could be, you know, only presenting one side of things. So that, that part is really tough. And, breaking out of that kind of structured going down the list, trying to find the impairments, um, trying to find out, you know, what makes it better, what makes it worse versus, you know, having a conversation and then asking the tough questions. Um, that's something that new grads struggled with. That's something that I have definitely struggled with. So getting to the core of, you know, why someone is really coming to see you 
and what they believe, what they believe thinks is going to get them better, what expectations they have in physical therapy, um, what does recovery mean to them, um, what, um, what their outlook is, you know, do they even see themselves getting better? So, so being able to ask these tough questions and then just have a dialogue with the person um, and just kind of letting it flow that way is, is, it's a skill, it's an art. It, it um, doesn't end up being the best um, way to teach a student necessarily because it is so tough and it's not a black and white, it's not a black and white thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the way that, that I've gravitated towards doing my subjective exam versus trying to just go down the line with it, with the, uh, with those check boxes. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful. Um, especially, you know, still for myself kind of learning, um, throughout the, the process and, and trying to, you know, reflect on my practice and, and continuously improve. Um, one of the, you know, I know you were bringing up some questions on kind of their outlook with, with therapy. Um, and one of the things that I've tried to, to ask more is, you know, what do you think is going on? And I think this leads into kind of something else that I wanted to talk to you with is unfortunately a lot of the misconceptions out there um, just on, you know, the internet or, you know, the media, but also just from other healthcare professionals, unfortunately, um, when people are, are told things that may or may not hold up, you know, with, you know, recent research, um, how do you go about, you know, navigating some of those things that people come in with, you know, being told from either a healthcare professional or a family member, or just the internet? Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll ask a similar question. I'll ask what the person thinks is going on and, you know, you get a, a wide variety of answers, everything from, you know, nothing having to do with structure at all. You know, I think I'm just being lazy, you know, and it's just because I'm not doing enough to, I don't know, which is a good one because then you can kind of help guide that person to, you know, a belief that lends itself to recovery versus going down rabbit holes that are dead ends, such as having the belief that, you know, I have a herniated disc and that's the sole reason why I'm in pain. And, you know, whether they got that from, you know, their doctor that they just saw or, you know, whether they read it on the internet or whether they got it from, you know, someone they know, you know, because, oh, well, you hurt your back. I had a disc injury. You probably have a disc injury. So you have to try to get to that, that belief because, you know, take, for example, this person who like, maybe they think they have a herniated disc and they're in PT and great. That's what you've, you've gotten to as their belief of why they're in pain, but you, you kind of have to go a, a couple more steps further. So let's say, you know, you, you find out that that's their belief and this person isn't only in therapy because, you know, they have to, before they get an MRI and they don't think PT is going to be helpful and they don't really want to be there. So if you never ask the right questions to find that out, you are going to have a very, very tough time uh, working with that person. It's going to be frustrating for both of you. Um, you know, cause that person might think, Oh, well, how, how are they going to fix my disc, you know, with exercise or, you know, how am I going to get better just by, you know, doing X, Y, and Z when I really think I need, 
a shot or surgery. So um, getting to that core belief, then you can start to kind of reframe their experience a little bit. And going about that is one of the toughest parts. You know, we, we know from research in other areas, um, like psychology. So belief change is one of the toughest things to, to do because sometimes patients end up adopting these, um, diagnoses as part of their core identity. And when you just kind of go in hot, cause I've done this before like, Oh no, you know, just because you have a herniated disc doesn't mean you're going to be in pain and, you know, we can get you better with exercise. So, you know, screw your doctor, <laughs> you know, uh, that is a tough route to go as well. So trying to meet the person in the middle. And if you can do this subtly, um, get the person to kind of change their mind, but make them think they did it versus you being the one to kind of tell them. So that's not something that you can do right away for some of these people who have these deep seated beliefs. But, you know, if you never ask the tough questions to, to kind of figure out what beliefs might be a barrier for that person getting better in the first place, then it leads to, you know, frustration by both the clinician and the patient. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if anything that I've picked up over the last year, especially is just how, you know, I already knew that the subjective was in it, was important part of, you know, my exam process, but, you know, even just more so, you know, how much I can, you know, again, it goes back to kind of asking the right questions and seeing, you know, what are their expectations with therapy? You know, what does success mean to them in terms of uh, an an outcome? Um, But, you know, one of the things that really opened kind of my mind, there was a few kind of pieces, um, kind of some of the qualitative research on, you know, I think there was, I think it was, um, you know, the 89% of people, you know, that, you know, their views on why they're in pain as far as low back pain came from, you know, another healthcare professional, um, or there was, you know, a viewpoint from JOSPT with sticks and stones, which, you know, probably one of my, you know, favorite things because it just kind of went over a lot of the, the terms, like people come in, they're like, Oh, I have degenerated discs or things. And, and these are, you know, to us, we kind of, you know, can understand that, you know, now that that's not the end of the world, but to someone that, you know, hears that for the first time and is told that by maybe another healthcare professional, that's some scary stuff. Um, and, you know, I know that, you know, you're going to, um, in, in a, a couple of weeks, um, be giving a, you know, uh, lecture for the Connecticut, uh, American physical therapy association, um, on the power of language. Um, you know, what, you know, kind of things are, you know, if someone was to, to sign up for that, what kind of things, you know, can they expect for you to go over and, you know, why do you think it's so important that, you know, we talk about this on a bigger scale, you know, like doing it for the, you know, Connecticut APTA? Yeah. So I think we've seen in the last, you know, couple decades research showing that the, the interactions between a clinician and a patient, um, you know, they, they matter. So the, the words that you use for someone, you know, you just mentioned that patients tend to pick up those beliefs from healthcare providers, um, and their beliefs influence, you know, how they seek treatment, uh, if they're going to continue doing the things they want to do, if they consider themselves sick or not based on those beliefs. So, you know, we have research showing that, um, you know, just adopting a 
biomedical framework as a healthcare provider, that spills over to your patients and patients don't get better quite as well, or they have missed time from work, or they have slightly more disability than they otherwise would have. Um, so in the talk itself, I'll try to go over all of the, the relevant research for, for these uh, topics. I'll try to offer some, you know, some general guidelines on things you want to look for and things you want to, you know, make a point to either avoid or you, you want to make a point to do, like reassure the person before they leave, you know, your clinic for that first time. Um, so, you know, I wanted to do this talk because I would get um, scripts from from doctors and it would have like a laundry list of biomedical problems like anteriorly rotated pelvis and, you know, leg length discrepancy and all this stuff. And the patient would come in and they'd be freaking out because they have all these problems that they didn't know they had. Um, or they had like some structural diagnosis that they thought couldn't be fixed. And then you're left with this person sitting in front of you and, you know, they're freaking out or they don't want to be there for one reason or another. Um, so it, ju it just made, it made it so much harder when this person came in after having talked with a healthcare provider, you know, it made it so much harder to treat that person because, you know, they had all these beliefs that were huge barriers for that person recovering. Um, even though that person might not have, you know, needed medical treatment at all, for example, that's, that's definitely happened in the past. So, I wanted to try to, you know, have the opportunity to talk to other healthcare providers about this stuff and about how it matters and, you know, what we can do about it. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And, you know, my, you know, I was thankful that, you know, in my curriculum, we did, you know, kind of talk about, um, you know, we had a communications class for, for physical therapists and we touched on a little bit of, you know, more kind of modern, uh, viewpoints of, of pain. Um, so, but unfortunately, you know, that's not always the case in, in other curriculums as well. So, you know, I think one of the things that really kind of irks me sometimes is when people consider, um, you know, your language and your communication with patients as, as, you know, the soft skills or that it's not as equally important as other aspects of treatment. You know, what do you say to, to other, you know, providers that, you know, don't, think that this stuff is important and, and they would consider it, you know, quote unquote, just fluff and, and stuff that doesn't really matter. Well, you know, trying to change another healthcare provider's mind on that issue, I think would be even harder than trying to change a patient's view on their diagnosis or, or their beliefs. Um, I think the, you know, biomedical model of treatment is so deeply ingrained in our culture and ingrained in, you know, healthcare education that, that I'm going to be honest, there's not much I can say other than just point them in the, in the, the direction of the research showing how impactful, you know, our interactions, you know, and the, all, all the contextual factors surrounding that, um, how important those, those are for a successful outcome. And that would probably be what I would go towards because, you know, I can't just say, you know, words matter because I found in my practice that I have to really be careful <laughs> with the way that I talk. Um, you know, it's supposed to be an evidence-based uh, culture, 
you know, um, medicine that is and healthcare. So by hopefully providing people, you know, with what the evidence says, we can kind of say that, you know, this isn't so much fluff. It's not necessarily soft skills, but this is probably just as important for, you know, helping someone than it is to, you know, find their structural impairment. You know, I think there are probably other aspects um, and areas of healthcare where, you know, this stuff might not matter that much. You know, we, we have, we do have data saying, uh, showing that, you know, when patients are looking for a surgeon, you know, they care way more about the technical aspects of the surgeon than, you know, their bedside manner. But as, you know, as you move towards a profession like ours, you know, and the, our technical skills don't really need to be that great because, you know, we're really not, uh, changing structure, um, on a short-term scale to get people better, you know, so the communication side of things, I think becomes even more important. Yeah. And, and something that, that just made me think of too, is, you know, we, you know, fortunately get to probably spend a lot more time with patients than other healthcare professionals do is, you know, we generally probably, you know, for a treatment session or an eval, you somewhere between like 30 to 60 minutes where, you know, just due to the structure of the healthcare system, uh, you know, a medical doctor may only get, you know, 10 minutes in, in the room with the patient. So, um, and, and they have to, you know, musculoskeletal, you know, rehabilitation, maybe, you know, they have to know so many things and, and so much that, I'm not sure even what their curriculum looks like in terms of kind of what they cover for that. So they may have learned, you know, one or two special tests, you know, per area of the body. Um, and we're, we know that, you know, those special tests aren't so special, but to them, you know, that kind of gives them their answer to then kind of punt it to us. And then we kind of have to figure it out. Um, so I think, you know, maybe just that may be part of the problem as well. And would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I would to- I would definitely agree with that. I think that their curriculum is I, obviously I have no idea what their curriculum really is, but I I do know that the biomedical framework is pretty much what's taught. So you know, if a, if a physician can, um, especially a primary care, you know, can localize the problem, rule out anything serious. Um, and if they could find like a structural thing, like say they do a shoulder impingement test or whatever, you know, and it comes back positive and then they say, Oh, well, you know, I have shoulder impingement, go to PT. There's nothing serious going on. So you don't, well, hopefully need to see an ortho or anything like that. Obviously that happens too. Um, and then they get funneled to us, you know, that's not that big of a deal. Um, and obviously it could be better, you know, we, they could be, um, up to date on, you know, the special tests themselves. And I think uh, in, in the short term in the system that, you know, we live in, it's, it's not that bad <laughs> is, is what I'm trying to get at. And, um, you know, w- we don't really see too many, uh, butting heads there, but on a related, um, note, you know, say there's a surgeon who, you know, has a patient in front of them and let's say they have shoulder pain and, you know, they take an MRI of their shoulder, they see a partial rotator cuff tear, um, and they, they want to do surgery. You know, they're like, oh, well, based on this, this tear size and your age, you know, I think you would benefit from, um, 
whatever, you know, a, um, rotator cuff surgery, but maybe we'll try PT first and see what happens. You know, this person might walk away saying, okay, well, I'm probably going to need surgery, but here I have to, you know, go through PT. So that situation, when the person comes into, uh, into your clinic and, you know, you have to try to educate, you know, the normalcy of rotator cuff tears and the likelihood of that person getting better without surgery is pretty high. So in that case, you're saying two totally opposite things where in the other example with the primary care doing like a special test and just finding shoulder pain, you know, you can, you can work around that a lot easier. You know, you can say, oh, well, you know, you have a sensitive shoulder, we can do some exercises. Most people get better, you know, and, and that's that, you know, whereas that latter example, you know, you have to go in a totally opposite direction that than what that person was told. So, so those are the cases that are a lot tougher. Um, and I think, you know, our words matter much more in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know that, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the lecture that you're going to be getting, I know I signed up for, and I'm excited to, to be a part of that, but you know, if people are interested in maybe signing up for that, you know, when is it and you know how they can, uh, go about registering for it? Sure. Yeah. So that's going to be, uh, Tuesday, uh, June 7th <laughs> at seven o'clock PM. And it's going to be on zoom. So it's, it's a, it's a virtual uh, webinar here and they could register on ctpt.org. So the Connecticut APTA website and under the events section, uh, you'll see it right there for June 9th. Awesome. Yeah, definitely uh, recommend checking that out. I know I'm looking forward to it myself. Um, you know, a lot of the things that, that you're doing, again, you are definitely someone, you know, as a, as a new grad clinician that I, I look up to as far as the things that you're doing, um, not only in, in the clinic, but, you know, also going back and, and being an adjunct professor now um, yourself, um, you know, being, you know, a husband, being a clinician, you know, you're a power lifter and, and an adjunct professor, you know, how do you how do you manage all of that and stay, you know, up to date with the research and all that stuff? Cause you know, if anything I found, you know, not only is just clinical practice, just hard in general, um, but making sure that we can, you know, be doing the best for the people that we provide care for. Um, you know, I also want to make sure that I'm setting time for, you know, the other important things in my life, like, you know, my girlfriend and my family and things like that. So, you know, do you have any, thing that that helps you in terms of of trying to manage all those things on your plate yeah i I have a couple tips i think uh, that uh i can give out that might be helpful so you know just setting up my course forced me to have to review a massive amount of research so so that was that was really helpful but in that process i found a couple topics that i thought were very relevant to staying up to date, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the communication side of things or, you know, strength and conditioning or osteoporosis or blood flow restriction. And, um, I set up PubMed alerts for each of those topics. So each Friday, you know, I get a list, um, oh, and, and low back pain, of course. (laughs) So I would get a list of articles that, you know, I thought were, were helpful to stay up to date on. Um, so, so that, that's one tip that I, that I have. Another would be, I 
subscribe to mass. So that's the strength and conditioning, um, kind of research review. That's a, that's a monthly thing. So, so between that and the barbell medicine review, you know, you get a fair bit of research that is, um, you know, all collected and written in these nicely, you know, laid out articles for you. So, you know, you don't have to go searching for everything to try to stay up to date. Um, so between all of those things, you know, forcing myself to be able to read enough throughout the week that I feel like I'm doing enough to kind of stay up to date. You know, I have a checklist on my phone that I have to make sure that each week I go through this checklist and I'm not a type A person at all. So I actually struggle doing these types of things. Um, like, you know, making checklists. So I made a checklist that I would have to read, you know, X amount of articles a week. I would have to read, you know, one section of mass and one section of the barbell medicine review. Um, and I have to do all these other things to try to, you know, stay, um, on the top of my game as a clinician. And those, that has really helped me a ton. Um, also it's, it's helpful when I have, um, Eric Lagoy is my coworker because we always bounce ideas off each other and we're always sending each other articles. So, so having a good group around you kind of motivates you to, you know, be the best version of yourself that you can. And, you know, having a good team around you definitely lends itself to that. Um, so, you know, I try to do a little bit of reading in the morning, maybe at lunch, I'll read an article. So I do, I squeeze it in there. Um, but I also try to make time for reading other non-physical therapy related things so that you can just kind of stay, um, more well, well-rounded as a person, uh, as a person. So even reading a little bit of fiction or, you know, like popular psychology or something that's not totally related, but that's, you know, it just, it just makes you a more well-rounded person. It helps you talk to patients about more varied things. It helps you connect and talk about maybe, you know, uh, other aspects of life, you know? So I think that's pretty important as well. Um, separated just from staying up to date, although that is, that's very important. Yeah, I definitely uh, can benefit from probably sending myself some more checklists. Um, <laughs> but usually uh, checklists just to stress me out, but I think, cause I, I avoid, I avoid making them, but I think they can also be helpful, um, at the same time. Um, so that was kind of a, a selfish question for myself, but, you know, in terms of, you know, any students that may be listening or people that just graduated or, you know, going into their final year of physical therapy school and perhaps going into some full-time clinical rotations, do you have any, you know, you know, one or two pieces of advice for anyone that might still be in school or just graduated? Um, well, I think after taking Ben Cormick's online um, course, Functional Therapeutic Movement, I wish I had taken that right out of school because it is such a cost-effective and comprehensive kind of collection of his thoughts and research presented in a way that will kind of force you to think critically, force you to view treatment a little bit differently. So I would, I would recommend everyone to take that class, to be honest. And I think I've recommended that to you in the past mm -hmm. when I saw you. So um, take that course because it, it kind of knocks out a whole bunch of birds with one stone. Um, I would 
probably recommend people to um, read articles that don't um, fit with your biases because that's something that I really never did. I would try to read articles, but I would only find things that either interested me or that I agreed with. So it was just kind of confirming my own biases right off the bat. And I think everyone does that. I still do it. But, you know, I would avoid some of those articles that didn't look like so fancy, you know, like some of that qualitative research you mentioned, like I would never have read something like that right away. And you get so much insight as to, um, you know, what patients are thinking and um, what they want out of, out of an encounter with you that, you know, gaining a little bit more insight in that realm would be good. So stepping out of your comfort zone is really important. Yeah, I think that's, that's huge. And something, you know, the qualitative area of research is something that probably within the last six months or so has really um, been something I've, I've gained a lot of interest in, because like you said, it allows you to kind of get inside the, the head of, of kind of what people in, you know, pain with these specific um, conditions are are actually thinking. Um, And it might be, you know, different than some of the conversations that you typically have with someone face to face. So I've truly found a lot of value from, from reading some of those qualitative pieces um, myself. Um, I know that we're kind of approaching an hour here and I've really, you know, enjoyed getting to speak with you. Um, But if anyone, you know, is looking to, to get in touch with you, how do they, how do they go about doing that? Um, You know, where can they find you as far as maybe reaching out as, you know, for a physical therapist or just in general? Um, I probably just recommend people find me on Instagram. I, I don't do a whole lot of social media, but, um, Eric Soko DPT, um, with, uh, periods in between, that's where they'd find me. If you send me a message, that's, uh, probably the best way to get in touch with me. Um, I, sh- I should, I forgot to mention for a new grad, some advice, look into level up because that is, it, that is another fantastic way to gain some mentorship. Um, and I know it's going to be some quality stuff. I know you went through it. So I wish I did something like that when I first got out of school. It's not something that, that I, you know, it, it wasn't available to me back then. So, you know, Zach and those guys, they're doing some good stuff. So. Yeah. And I'm going to be uh, chatting with Zach and Steph on, on here on the Mike Check podcast um, in the next, you know, coming weeks or something. Awesome. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that because I've, that's definitely, that and clinical athlete have probably been, you know, the biggest game changers in terms of my practice. Um, but you know, as far as, as social media concerned, that's with a K, correct? Soko with a K. Oh yeah. Yep. Soko with a K. Yep. Not, not like the <laughs> Eric with the C Soko with a K. Yeah. Not with the, uh, <laughs> Southern comfort. Soko. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Eric. Well, again, thank you very much for, for coming on today. I really appreciate getting the, the chance to chat with you and, you know, hopefully, um, we'll get to do this again in the future. I know I'm looking forward to your presentation for the CTA BTA, like we talked about earlier. Um, but, but they, thank you again for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I don't know why, you know, I was this fortunate to be able to be interviewed at all, but I will take it. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you again for listening to today's episode of Mike Check. Please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already on whatever platform you're using to listen, just so that you can stay up to date with all the content that I'll be continuing to put out. But that'll do it for today's episode, and I'll catch you guys next time.